Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast is also supported by the novel Deadly Declarations, available in print and audiobook wherever books are sold, and an ebook on Amazon Kindle. Written by Landis Wade and narrated by Bill A. Jones, Deadly Declarations is a light-hearted legal thriller that delves into a 250-year-old colonial mystery that Founding Father John Adams called one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. For reviews and information about Deadly Declarations, please visit LandisWade.com. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode 293, we visit with Elon Barnahama, author of Escape Route, a novel set in New York City during the tumultuous late 1960s, where the protagonist is a young Jewish teenager coming to terms with the world around him. The novel is told by teenager Zach, a first-generation son of Holocaust survivors, and New York's Met fan, who becomes obsessed with the Vietnam War and with finding an escape route for his family when he believes the United States will round up and incarcerate its Jews. Zach meets Sam, a seventh-generation Manhattanite whose brother, has returned from Vietnam with PTSD, which results in a suicide. Together, Sam and Zach explore protest, friendship, music, faith, and love during a time littered with hope and upheaval around the globe. Escape Route seeks to keep the terms in country and the world in our national conversation. Fry Galliard, author of A Hard Rain, American 1960s, and NPR Great Read 2018 says of the book, This is a beautifully rendered novel populated by unforgettable characters in an unforgettable time. Barnahama is a literary craftsman at the top of his game. Superb. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. I also love how interviewing more than 300 authors on this podcast has helped my own writing journey. I've learned quite a bit from these talented guests. And if you'd like to learn more about my books and uh, what I've done with that uh, knowledge, you can uh, check out LandisWade.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there, and uh, also please follow me on BookBub. And for everything related to Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got a newsletter there as well. And by the way, with these newsletters, which come out monthly, we don't spam you because that takes way too much time. And finally, if you'd like uh, to get a free audiobook when you sign up for audiobooks at Libra.fm, just use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and you're in business. Now, let's get to the episode. Elon, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Landis. Yeah, and uh, we're recording this uh, 
in February, but it's coming out uh, in May, just before your release. Uh, are you excited about that? I'm, I'm really excited. And um, it's fun to have the actual release day on May 4th, which is uh, the anniversary of Kent State. Um, also, Star Trek, May the 4th be with you day these days, <laughs> of course. But, uh, you know, Kent State is, uh, ends up being the last day of the book. So it's, it's nice to have the release date on May 4th. Yeah, well, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, and you know you've written a lot over the years. Um, what makes this book different for you? Well, um, it's it's a combination. I've I've always sort of written about friendship and family and chosen family. Um, uh, I've written both nonfiction about that, but um, I, I I'm drawn to the '60s um, and uh, not just because I was there. It was a turning point in the in the country and. Um, I think I ventured into some family history into this, which I haven't done much in my writing into my parents and grandparents and their um, experiences in, in uh, World War II um, time period. Um, and so that was sort of, so, so it's not autobiographical, but there's biographical information. And so that was the first kind of venture into family history. Yeah, and we're going to talk a bit about that. But uh, first, the the setting, you've set this novel um, in New York City. Uh, you say that you are a New Yorker by geography. Yeah. And, and like your character, Zach, a New York Mets fan by default. Yeah, you know, in sports, it's kind of fun to stick with, you know, where you start. Uh, we, we, we are tortured Mets fans for the most part. Um, but I grew up a bicycle ride away from Shea Stadium. And um, I'm, I'm actually in my son's room right now with those autographs behind me. I got by walking, riding my bike down to Shea, you know, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and um, so yeah, we we were we were all Mets fans. Uh, I'm still friends with a bunch of high school friends. We even did Mets fantasy baseball camp together. Uh, <laughs> that's, so that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I was wondering about uh, you know this time period and how personal it was to you growing up without dating yourself. Yeah. But, uh, you know how much of your own experiences are kind of wrapped up in in Zach and what he was experiencing. I, I think it's the. Um, we were very hopeful then, and we thought things were changing. Everything and everyone seemed to be changing. Um, and uh, I really bought into that. Um, and, and you know, I, I don't think I ever became disillusioned, though. I, I remember, you know, finding out that other friends may have been applying to law school, and I was still waiting for these changes to happen. Um, but I think it was just such an interesting time. I mean, um, the Vietnam War going from... Kennedy bringing in the, the the 60s was such a hopeful generational shift. And and then we had Gulf of Tompkin and Watergate. And, and it was, I, I don't know that it was the turning point with disillusionment of government, but there was a, a distrust that, that sort of elevated at that point. At the same time, people were trying to change things. And um, so it had a lot of effect on me. I, you know, I, I wished people could, were more patient with change during, um, a lot of people seem to give up, but, you know, um, so it, it just seems to be such a pivotal time. You know, you went from um, Kennedy and Hope and the space and Woodstock, but then there were these assassinations and cities on fire. Um, you had, um, you know, just uh, it, it was just an interesting time to navigate between music and sex and drugs and rock and roll, but um, politics um and, and the Vietnam War sort of covered everything. Yeah, and you chose to tell it. You could have told it through, you know, a number of different points of view, uh, a, a number of different age groups. Uh, 
you didn't tell it through someone in college. Uh, you told it through someone who's uh, a youngster in high school. Um, they're just sort of coming into their only 14 yeah. years old, as I, as I recall. And, uh, you know, yeah, they, they're going to have a draft number to deal with, but not for another three or four years. So they're experiencing it. I think there, there's one scene, I think, where his friend tells him, look, life's good. You know, I'm on the baseball team. You, you know, you're on the track team. Stop, you know, think. But you kind of dealt with this issue of people – kind of glancing over at the TV or glancing over at the newspaper while their lives are going on and knowing that something's not right here. Yeah. And, and I think there, there is that mix of, of living in the day versus worrying about the future. I mean, so, so Jonah tries to get him to, um, Zach starts keeping track of how many people are dying every day in Vietnam. And, um, and, and Jonah says something like, you know, did I kill them? Did I, <laughs> did I, um, you know, and in the meantime, there was, parties and, and, and girls to think about. Um, so we, you know, I think, I think we're always, most of us are struggling day to day to, to, to keep that balance even now with the politics around us now. Um, how much of our lives do we live and how much are we, um, you know, we want to do something. Not everyone can do something. Not everyone can do everything. That's one thing Zach has to learn. Um, but, but I think we still struggle. I, I think many people still struggle with that balance between, like you said, shift, looking at the newspaper and living the, the smaller lives that we have in our communities. Exactly. Now, another uh, aspect of this novel um, that I was drawn to, uh, and I'll tell you why, I grew up uh, Episcopalian, they sometimes call us Whiskey Palians, mm-hmm. and then uh, I married a my wife was the daughter of a Baptist minister. We ended up gravitating to not a Southern Baptist, but court of a moderate uh, liberal Baptist church. Uh, our daughter, though, um, she has converted to Judaism. Mm-hmm. So she is uh, she's probably one of those in her synagogue that knows more yeah. uh, than, than most to attend because she's went she's been through all the classes. But so uh, in talking with her, I've learned a few things. And then reading your book, you, you sort of you bring this to light in your book because you open the book with uh, Zach at his bar mitzvah. And he's, uh, you know, I think it's uh, age 13. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. 13. And he's become a man at age 13. Uh, and yet he's not particularly religious. He's doing it because his parents are telling him to do it, but there's this history in the family uh, that dates back, you know, to the Holocaust and the difficulties that, uh, you know, went through all that. And so I'm just wondering, um, because you're exploring a cultural time period, Elon, um, there is something I've learned. There's a difference between someone who's a cultural Jew and a religious Jew. Yeah. But in either case, you're still a Jew, right? And and that's that's come up a lot in politics these days, for sure. Um, um, you know, I don't do this in, in the book, but are Jews white? Whites don't see us as Jews, but um, but Jews are seen as whites by many others. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that you're a member of the... When I grew up, there was this thing of like Hitler didn't care if you were religious or not. If your lineage was Jewish, you were Jewish and you went to the camps. Um, so, um, you know, my, my, my family is from Berlin and Vienna. Um, my mother's family had a, his, a family tree 500 years back in Berlin. Very non-religious. My grandmother was one of those, and you may have heard this term, Hitler made me Jewish. Um, she, she was very assimilated. My father grew up in Vienna with a, a religious family and, um, he became less, less observant, but very, 
um, much Israel identified. Well, that's because he fled Europe for Israel. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the stories is is part of the power of being culturally Jewish. Um, and and for many people, the the, the tie to those stories is is, um, is is what makes them Jewish. Um, so yeah, and and I I think that especially at that time period, there was a feeling that you couldn't avoid being Jewish, whether you wanted to or not. You could assimilate, you could do whatever you want, but you were still Jewish. Um, yeah, and we're gonna have a reading in, in a little bit here, not yet, but uh, listeners, uh, which focuses on an aspect of this. And and Lon, I really like the character Ali, although. She didn't, the older sister, she didn't have a huge part, but she just had this presence about her in the parts that she did have in the book that uh, she was not going to be, you know, necessarily controlled by the narrative, but she's, she was going to um, honor certain things. So I, I'm wondering, um, you, you've worked with at-risk youth, you've coached high school baseball. Uh, how did these experiences help you in drafting, writing, rewriting this coming of age story? Yeah, Um Certainly, I mean, baseball, not just because it's a, it, all sports is a wonderful escape, um, but also because it's the, the team, the individual, you could you have to do your part in sports um, and not just baseball. I happen to be drawn to baseball for its own reasons, but um, this idea of, of being part of a group and, and you're thrown in. And um, I, th- I think Seinfeld had a funny line about when you root for a team, you root for laundry. whoever's wearing the uniform that's the team and so there's this sense of you know like i said i'm still a mets fan because that's how i started it's almost like you're a jew because you got born into it um i mean yeah you can change but uh i I don't feel forced to stay into it you know but um so so there's that part there's working with kids and there's seeing um that mix of 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 longing to understand and, and, and looking for someone to trust. You mentioned Ali. I mean, that's sort of his, um, you know, his guide, his, in some ways his guiding light. He's looking to different people, different through the novel to sort of for, for answers, you know, who has answers and mostly nobody does. That's what we find out when we grow up, adults never had answers. <laughs> and, and, um, but, you know, just so having worked with these kids, you, you, you do the best you can. You don't, um, working with at-risk youth, I didn't have an answer to turn their lives around. They were outside of school much more than inside of school. As it was their neighborhoods had a lot more to do with their circumstances. But you still have to give them sort of hope and direction rather than answers. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the storyline here before we uh, jump into a few themes and then a reading. Um, give us a little uh, thumbnail sketch of, of the story here uh, of Escape Route. So... I think one of the things is, um, you know, is that they're trying, like you mentioned earlier, so they're trying to navigate this unknown territory of this time period. Um, so there's a, every teenager has to navigate that change in life going from middle school to high school and, you know, uh, puberty and, and adulthood and responsibility. And um, when you're bar misfit, it's about being responsible to the tribe and for the tribe, not just um, not just getting the party at 13, that it, it's sort of the American view of it. Um, and, and so, um, I'm really drawn to this idea of chosen family of, of, of um, you know, you, you're born into a family that doesn't always work out, but the, but you can choose family and, and who are, um, my kids call my good friends from high school, uncle, and, and they call their kids cousins. And it's a small group of us, but, um, 
uh, and, and they're close to each other. It, it doesn't exclude family. So I want to blend all those things because, um, you know, to, there's a lot of references to music in it, but not this song. But, you know, so you get by with a little help from my friends. I mean, that's kind of like a lot of the idea of the book, um, you know, it, it, and he meets veterans. Another part of the book that really interested me is so I didn't go to Vietnam. I was too young. I'm not sorry for that. <laughs> um, but I met I worked with a lot of veterans and um, because of my parents uh, history in the Middle East, I had. I, th- I think I had more of a um, sensitivity toward the soldiers than many people did in the U.S. at that time. I, I know too many soldiers came back very disgusted with how they were treated. Um, I wanted to tell the vets stories. I, I couldn't. Ex- I, I couldn't. Um, this isn't like the things they carried where I could talk about their experiences, but I felt like I could at least honor some of their stories. And I worked with vets, and I worked with vets back then um, because I didn't see them as the enemy during the war. Um, it was the politicians who sent them there to Vietnam. But um, so I wanted to tell. So that's why there's um, a good amount of uh, um, veteran uh, presence in the book as well. Um, and 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 they they end up, I don't say mentoring, but sharing what they can. Everybody has to do their little part. I think that's one of the themes of the book. Um, yeah, it is. It is a group of friends that are trying to navigate. Uh, a strange adult world and and try to figure it out. And there's one little scene that I was really drawn to when you're speaking of friendship uh, where Zach uh, stands up and he says uh, uh, with his friends there, he says, we gather around each other and that lets us, that gives us more strength to face the battering we will get from the world around us. It's a beautiful thing and it makes me happy. And when I read that, it sort of reminded me of the situations where I've been in you know, difficult circumstances with friends who are sharing that journey. And Zach is sort of speaking to that in this little speech he gives to his friends, this toast that it creates a certain kind of bond that that it doesn't require, you know, a blood relation at all. And of course, I'm thinking back to one college football camp when <laughs> with, with all the other guys, I'm out there in the hot sun four times a day, you know, uh, I, I was also too young to go to Vietnam. So all I got is, uh, you know, trying to slug at slug it out in, in, in football camp. But you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Absolutely. It could be any, anything like that. That that's that's where you know when you asked about coaching football baseball, I mean it's it's um it, it's the kid who 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 makes an error at second base and, and they get the next batter and so nothing and people say no harm is done and he comes in and says, Yeah, but now the pitcher's gotta face another bat an extra batter and he knows that I mean he's not moping about it but he understands it it's it's bigger than that we're all in it together and and i still you know still feel bad for the error so yeah that team you know uh, it's it's unifying the country you know it's that kind of bigger team you know uh, 50 states or one country you know i have a good friend who um always says that uh leaders of big companies and law firms and what have you should not be tennis players or golfers. They need <laughs> to play on a, they need, they need to play on, on, on a team that, with, yeah. with, with other individuals. Um, anyway, uh, let's do this. We, uh, this is uh, Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written words. You've got a little scene from very early in the book. Uh, I think we've already mentioned Zach. He's in the scene. Uh, his parents are in the scene. Um, his sister is in the scene as well. Anything else you want to say about this? Um, you read? It's, it's the evening before his bar mitzvah. Um, his sister is off in Colombia um, and uh, surprises him that she comes home. So she comes home. She, um, yeah. And so this is early in the book and an aunt and uncle are there who 
can't have kids, but it's never discussed why. The part we left out, Zach, my father said, is that you don't technically have to do anything to become bar, a bar mitzvah. I don't, I said. There's no ritual requirement. I'm not following, I said. Didn't I just study for nine months? You, have to, you just have to turn 13, my father said. Why all the fuss? Because Jews are Jews simply because what we read together. Jews are connected by texts we read, by books we share. And because learning the fundamentals seemed like a good idea to someone a long time ago, and then a few others followed, and it became a tradition, and Jews, well, you know, we are big fans of tradition. I like traditions. Spring training, opening day, cartoons on Saturday morning, the World Series. Just to be clear, you're telling me that all that studying I've been doing was not required? Not required, my father said. Okay, this is information I could have used earlier. What would it have changed, my father asked. He said, he was right. Required or not, God or not, I was going to follow through with my bar mitzvah. It was part of a contract I had apparently agreed to before I was born. It was non-negotiable the same way I apparently agreed to let a stranger snip off my foreskin my eighth day experiencing sunlight. So I practiced and I studied and I learned and memorized and rehearsed and didn't question anything about my role in the Saturday morning ceremony that would add me to the list of adult male members of the tribe of Aaron, a tribe that honored a God who allowed the Holocaust, a God who looked away as my father got polio and became confined to a wheelchair. The tribe had survived for thousands of years and countless attempts to get rid of it. Who was I to mess with a streak? That's all true, Ali said to our dad. But the question before us is, why does the bar mitzvah take place at 13? And why do girls become bat mitzvah at 12? We mature quicker than boys, Aunt Sadie said. We certainly do, Ali said, looking quite satisfied. Everybody seemed to relax, happy that Ali had made her point without any casualties, and now we could enjoy our feast. It's all about physical maturity, Ali, wasn't done. It's about making babies. That relaxed state evaporated in an instant. I started a body count. This was kind of funny. Babies, Aunt Sadie repeated her niece's words. Uncle Herb and Aunt Sadie were never able to have children. Boys can have babies at 13, girls at 12, Ali paused. Uh, Ali paused to make sure everyone was paying attention. She was working the, her audience. In the old days, you became a man when you could be fruitful and multiply. I can multiply and divide, I said. Everybody laughed, except Allie. Maybe she forgot I was in honors math. Begot and beget, Allie continued. Forgot and forget, my father responded. Allie, enough. Becoming a man is about being able to make more Jews, Allie said, about being able to procreate. It's important to make more Jewish babies, my father said. We have some catching up to do. They can't make babies alone, my mother said. Exactly, Ali said. I think my mother was imagining the grandchildren Ali was supposed to be give, getting around to giving her. You must realize, our Grandpa Isaac said to Ali, that these laws and customs and rituals and traditions are very old. They were created by a people who rode around on camels and didn't have indoor plumbing. Back then, people grew up quicker. They died young. All labor was manual, and making babies was necessary for survival. Okay, I said, so I don't have to make a baby. That's a relief. I got another laugh, and the night was still young. I'm with you there, little brother, Ali said. I have no intention of ever having a kid. 
The thing is, this time I was trying to be funny. This time I did think we were joking. Instead, I walked right into something. What's this about, Grandpa Isaac asked. He put down his fork and leaned heavily on the table, giving his eldest grandchild all of his attention. The world is too screwed up, Grandpa, Ali said. There's too many people in it already, and disaster's much too certain for me to bring life into it. That would be irresponsible. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I, as I was reading that, and I thought, um, you know, what a shocking shot across the bow, so to speak, uh, you know, by this young college-age kid to the parents and the grandparents who, who had been through so much in the Jewish culture. And and there was a real, um, I, I didn't grow up with this, but there, there was a real sense of, of making up for the, the, the people who died. And um, there were people who grew up with, there was whole communities. I, I think I saw a documentary once in Jersey, and that was their whole goal is to just have as many kids as possible. Um, you know, and, and, and people would say, you know, you're alive, but someone's dead. You know, I didn't grow up with that guilt. Thing, but you can, one one can imagine that there were some people um, who, who felt who took it seriously. You you can see the reason why it may not have been. The, I don't agree with their um, the the method, but you can certainly see the motivation. Yeah, and you said that uh, escape route seeks the, to keep the terms in country and in the world in our national conversation. Talk about that then and now. Yeah, so. Um, I mean, the, the term in country, obviously, for those who don't know, is, is what people refer to being in Vietnam, and then they return to the world um, when, when their tour was up or even when they were in R&R. Um, obviously, a wonderful, wonderful book in country by Bobby Ann Mason. Um, and I didn't, I, I love the book and didn't even realize that when I was starting this book, Sam is the main character in, 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 in country. This is Sam with two M's, but the, the name in my book actually comes from a friend who died of pancreatic cancer, a, a male friend. And I just wanted to use his name. And, and then if, you know, six months later, I realized it was the same name. I didn't care because of anyway. Um, and so ancient history is, you know, 50 years at this point in U S uh, schools. And um, I, I think it's important that the percentage of people who went to Vietnam from that age group of, of seven, eight, nine year age group is like, you know, 20% or something. Some, I don't remember the number it was something high. It was like 3 million people, 3 million uh, Americans passed through, soldiers passed through, which is, um, and, and I just think, you know, regardless of, of the, of the justification of the war, I, I think it's so important. I think when, when I talk to Vietnam veterans now, and I had a different, I still have different experiences with that, they, they feel more, um, more at home visiting Vietnam, who they fought, Vietnamese who they fought against, than, than the respect some of them get at home. And so um, I, I just think we owe it to them, I guess, is, is the bottom line. Let's talk about the title just uh, a second, Escape Route. There was this, uh, you know, scene in the book where he's starting to think about, uh, you know, he goes to AAA. I'm thinking back to AAA. We had to go get a trip tick. Yeah. You couldn't just look on the Internet. And he's going to map out uh, the back roads to Canada. So you know, he and his family can escape when the U.S. starts coming for the Jews again. And while it, it, at first glance, it seems far-fetched, uh, in this world that we live in today, um, you know, this getting uh, where people are becoming more and more, you know, obsessed with, you know, the other, um, 
How, how real is this concern? It, it's, it, I almost feel like it's more of a concern now than when I was growing up, um, even in, in the shadows of, of the Holocaust itself. Um, of course, now our route to Canada would be blocked by truckers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not by the time yeah, this comes no, in. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, I, I, I am concerned with it now. And, and, and it's um, in, in my own family history, my, like I said, my, my grandmother's family was there for hundreds of years. They have a family tree. She was, her husband was a lawyer. They left early. Um, nobody understood why they were leaving. And, they, and, and so sometimes I wonder, like, how come I'm not leaving early? Um, my father uh, survived Kristallnacht in Vienna, the night of broken glass. There was one in, in Germany and one in Austria. Um, his family, his parents sent him with, and a lot of the kids were sent out of Vienna. And, and his parents were lucky they made it out um, afterwards. Um, so, you know, not the warning signs have been there for the last four or five years. And the last few months, uh, you know, the banning of mouse, not wanting to teach Holocaust. Um, the same reason I want to keep in-country alive and so so we don't repeat that. What's the um, Mark Twain history may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Um, yeah. And and so, I, you know, I think the same thing with the Holocaust. And uh, in, in my own mind, I, I do think it's, um, it's, it's something to, uh, to be aware of and... Um, we were talking about having kids. If, I think if I didn't have kids, I might not be here right now <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the country. Well, let's hope um, perhaps that somebody will ban your book and yeah. then more people will read it, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, what was it, number number one in every market mouse. Um, he actually, um, Art Siegelman, grew up in the same neighborhood in Queens. Um, okay. I take no credit for it. That's as, that's as far as I, my connection is with him. But it was that same kind of Jewish neighborhood. Every novel has an antagonist. Um, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a group, sometimes it's a thing, sometimes it's a setting. Um, I get the feeling that the antagonist in this book is is much bigger than just, you know, the people they run into, the fights they get into, the things that are happening. What would you consider to be the antagonist against uh, the arc that these characters are trying to to pursue? I, I think it's a, a little bit of apathy and sort of... Um, um, selfishness, you know, people out for just themselves kind of, kind of thing. Um, I, I think what they're trying to, um, you know, like I said, I, I, the theme of community is, is, is big for me and, and, and the people who go it alone, you know, do, do end up, you know, as long as, as long as they're okay, we don't care about the Vietnam war. As long as my family's mm -hmm. not there, you know, as long as there's no army base in my town or, um, things like that. I think I think that's the the, the apathy and the, and the sort of selfishness. Mm. Let's uh, with a few minutes we have left. We got a couple of writing life questions. Um, did you uh, have any interesting, funny stories in uh, your path to uh, publishing? In my path to publishing, <laughs> um, it, it was it was slow, <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I mean I, I've actually kind of. Bounced around. Uh, you mentioned Fry's. Um, uh, uh, I met Fry. I was a writer in residence in in Fairhope Center for the Writing Arts in, in Fairhope, Alabama, which for a New Yorker, um, and, and it was one of the most wonderful experiences. And, and I met him. There was a celebration of Pat Conroy, that um, um, oh, Hoffman. Um, I'm sorry, 
first name. He 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 was a contributor to the book. So it was a it was a whole evening at, at the bookstore in, in Fairhope, and 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 so it's kind of taken me different places. Um, I have in North Carolina. Um, I was at Wildacres up near Asheville, um, and and it it's actually been been a, a really opening experience in, in a lot of ways. So so the antipathy the, instead of finding an escape route, I found much more community around the country, which is what I believe in. I don't, I, I hate the red blue thing because mm. it's, it's just not my experience as I travel. I've traveled like most of the States by now and, and it's just not there. I think because of the themes of your books, I know how you might answer this, but um, talk about the importance of, uh, you know, friends and the formation of that is writing friends and the formation of a writing community in terms of, a writer having any success at all? I, I think it, it's absolutely essential. And, and sometimes when you move around a lot, um, it, it's harder. Um, uh, I, I'm, if, if I wrote an autobiography, it would either be late bloomer or slow learner. And by the time I got around, I decided to get an MFA. My second son was born the first semester and, and that put a little difficulty, but I've, I've kind of you know, it, it, it's it's critical and social media has actually been pretty useful for it. Um, you know, I, I um, can keep in touch with writers in California who are friends of mine and we can, and you, you know, it doesn't take long to send a, a story, uh, something to have someone read. So it's, I think it's critical, not just for technical stuff, like this is terrible, this is good, but just for, for motivation, it's, it's a lonely sport writing. And, uh, and, and, you know, as, as you know, from, from your own writing and, and, and so being able to talk to people who share that loneliness and and are inspired by it, not to share, I, I, to me, it's not lonely, but it's, it's a, it's a lonely sport. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. I asked this to writers who've been writing a while. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self, something of value that, uh, had you known it then, it uh, might have helped you based on things you've learned since then. Could you narrow it down to something? I would say just hurry up and don't waste any minutes. I, I, I yeah, that that would be my first one. And um, because and just write every day. It do, it doesn't have to be good. You can fix bad writing. You can't fix not writing. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's like that uh, shot that you never take. It's not going to go in. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, listeners, we're going to jump over here just a moment to uh, Patreon. Or you can join us there at uh, patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Rears Podcast, where you can uh, help support the podcast for a few dollars a month and get over 120 exclusive episodes. This is going to be part of our segment in 2022, where we call 10 Minutes of Tips About Reading and Writing. We're going to talk about uh, what Elon is reading and uh, uh, a few more writing tips uh, in that process. So join us there. Uh, Lon, what's, uh, you got this book coming out. Are you already working on another one? I'm working on a couple of books. I'm working on a, um, a, a novel about somebody who wants to see if he can reinvent himself and not a racist past, but get a clean slate. Um, he runs the Boston marathon, finishes a, a half an hour before the bombs go off and then changes his life. And then, uh, a nonfiction book about a friend of mine who's, um, uh, was, grew up modest means become ridiculously successful and just help people along the way. And he was a part owner of the Charlotte Hornets by accident. How about that? Yeah. So you're ambidextrous. You can write uh, fiction and nonfiction at the same time. It, this is a, I've never worked. I've worked on nonfiction articles, but not a book. So that's been a challenge. 
Uh, yeah. Look, Ilana, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. I want to thank you. That I love the show, and, and, and thanks again. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.